Thanks, George. Okay, so we are going to be talking about economic harmonies and economic discord. And I want to accomplish, I hope to accomplish, a couple of things this evening. First, I want to introduce Frederic Bastiat to you, especially in regard to his ideas in the realm of economics. And secondly, I hope that you will see that the study of economics um, is valuable to you having a truly Christian lens through which you see the world and understand the order that God has built into the world. Economics, I would suggest, should be foundational education for our children. Uh, economics relates to everything, and I hope to show that here. Now, we'll get to, to Bastiat in a moment, but first I want to set up the context of why I want to talk about this subject of economic harmonies, and we'll start with Scripture. So Genesis one twenty eight says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this is, of course, what we refer to as the creation man mandate. This is what God created man unto, to be fruitful and multiply. And I gave a talk at the first Buchanan Forum, many moons ago now, on the topic of biblical kingship. And there I was trying to make the point that the creation mandate is a mandate for a kingly race, kingly Creatures. There's something unique and special that mankind has compared to animals or compared to angels, and that something is something royal in nature. And we see this fleshed out more fully in the New Covenant as the New Testament explains to us that we are, a, as Christians, a royal priesthood. We've been made kings and priests unto God, and the question arises from that, well, what does that mean exactly, that we are kingly, that we are royal in some sense? And so I made the point then that the language of the creation mandate is itself royal or kingly in nature. And it helps define for us what true kingship is and what it does. True kingship is creative. As, as man made in the image of God were to mimic what God has done in creation, he spoke the world into existence. We obviously cannot do that, but God commands us to be like him. We're to take the things of this world and, to, and transform them into more things or better things or more beautiful things. And it's that transformation process that is royal in nature. So we're to take that creative and productive work to prosper and beautify the world. And to that end, we subdue the earth and we take dominion over it. So a true king, according to the Bible, is one who does these things. It's not just this worldly definition of a, a monarch or something similar that rules over other, man, other men. A true king is one who obeys and lives out the creation mandate faithfully. Um, but with all of that, we're not thrown into a world of chaos where we must fulfill this mandate. Lying below the creation mandate, foundationally, is the order which God has, in a sense, baked into the world. Okay, the world around us has a certain nature to it. And we see this very simply with mathematics. One plus one equals two. And then using the same principles in operation there, we un unpack more and more complex mathematics, like two plus two equals four, and then all the way up to whatever, calculus and beyond. And likewise, language helps us to describe objective truth. So we say that up is up and down is down, and we know what that means. And these are concepts that are essential to a world with order. Imagine trying to be productive, trying to be fruitful and multiply in a world of chaos where there's no mathematical certainty, no certainty about anything. It would obviously be impossible. Even the language of scripture in the creation mandate assumes order. 
we grasp concepts like multiplication. You plant one seed in the ground and you harvest 100 seeds. Now, the discipline of economics provides us with economic laws that are also foundational to the ability to be fruitful. They're sort of the unchangeable rules by which we do anything in the world. And I want to take a, a few moments to skip a smooth stone across the deep waters of, of these economic laws and principles to further set up Bastiat. Consider where economics starts. It starts with a simple proposition that men act with intention. Everything that we do is done with some intention, some purpose. Every action we take has a goal in mind, an end. And so we pick up means and ideas of how to use those means to accomplish our ends. And this may seem really basic, but it's really an important starting point, much like one plus one equals two is an important starting point. But we can unpack these truths and build upon them. So we know that mankind acts with intention, and then we recognize other economic laws and principles, such as that means are scarce. Okay? We cannot just dream up our goals and have them immediately present. Means are scarce, and of course, that other ordering agent that's baked into our world, time, time is scarce as well. We recognize that there are goods that we consume, and then there are goods that are used in the production of those consumer goods. We all have different ends, different means at our disposal, and we all value things differently. The law of marginal utility, the law of returns, the law of supply and demand, etc. All of these universal laws and related principles, such as how we value things, how prices are determined, the division of labor how our, our, our time preferences for, for certain goods, all of these things work together to provide for us a framework. And that framework is the order of God's creative work for us to live in and be creative, to be fruitful and multiply. So when you combine all of these economic laws and principles, you see that you live in a world with incredible order, principles that are consistent universally. So the nature of this world is not chaotic. God set the ground rules for you to be fruitful and multiply and to think wisely about how to accomplish your goals, your ends with means. Now, with all of these principles at play, there's, there's one aspect in particular that I think is really remarkable. And this is one of the most, I think, magical glories of the way that God has ordered the world. When all of these individuals out there, all of whom have different ends, different means at hand, different values when they trade freely and voluntarily with one another, both individuals in that exchange win. Both come out ahead in the exchange. Bastiat writes this in his book, Economic Harmonies, quote, the general nature of exchange is to lessen the amount of effort in relation to the satisfaction. Between our wants and our satisfactions, there are interposed obstacles that we succeed in lessening by joining our forces or dividing our labor, that is, by exchange. Whether we consider the relations of man to man, family to family, province to province, nation to nation, it is evident, I believe, that we cannot solve or even approach the social problems from any of these points of view without first choosing between these two maxims. The profit of the one is the loss of the other, or the profit of the one is the profit of the other, end quote. And this choice is a pivotal one for Bastiat. He desires that men be prosperous, that they be fruitful, and he knows that man is more likely to be prosperous if he lives among prosperity, if he lives in a prosperous place. And he will show that where free and voluntary exchanges happen, both parties are winners to that exchange, but where there is not free and voluntary exchange, there is plunder. He likes to use the word plunder for this. And with plunderous exchanges, someone does win and someone does lose. 
So this is what we're talking about when we speak of economic harmonies or with plunder, economic discord. We currently live in a very complex economy where we experience these win-win transactions, exchanges all the time. And of course, we also experience plenty of plunder in our day. So now, Frederick Bastiat lived 1801 to 1850, and sometime in the future, we need to do a more complete biographical sketch of him and his life. Uh, it was rather amazing and fruitful. He was born in the southwest of France in a port town, and he was born into the, uh, a family business of international export, import, and banking. Um, he saw there firsthand the value of free trade among peoples. He saw the win-win aspect of free trade without any government intervention or any pirates intervening in the trades. And, and he saw economic harmony. He saw the people in his region being uh, prosperous because of the free trade. And then he saw that disappear with French protectionist policies and tariffs, and he saw economic discord. Okay? He saw the people in his region go from prosperity to poverty. His life was lived during political upheaval. In 1848, France would see a revolution against monarchical rule and a turn towards a more Republican uh, form of government. And this would be many of uh, such revolutions at that time in Europe. Bastiat, for his part in all of it, had admired the free trade movement in England, where protectionist policies and tariffs were being canned. And he saw the success of that there and wanted to bring that sort of free trade principle to his home country, France. Bastiat basically became independently wealthy and could pursue the study of economics and political theory. He ended up going to Paris and with the intention of persuading the French people to adopt uh, free trade principles like the English had done. Um, he became a professional pamphleteer, basically. He was a writer. He was an economic journalist and he started his own magazine on free trade principles. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long. He participated uh, in the French National Assembly, but then he had to step down because of his health. He unfortunately was in poor health and died at a relatively young age, 49, 50 years old. Many are quick to note that while Bastiat had very little influence in France during the time that he lived, his writing lived on and became quite influential. And I want to highlight a few of his works here because as you dive into being a student of economics, I think Bastiat is a great place to start. Um, he's not infallible by any means, but he is, he's very readable, persuasive, um, and he intentionally wrote so that the common man could understand the principles and ideas that he was putting forth. You might be familiar with another writer and work that accomplishes this, this same thing, and that's Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, which is straight up a repackaging of Bastiat's essay titled That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen. In that essay, Bastiat explains and puts forth the broken window fallacy. So in it, a boy throws a rock, it hits a, uh, a window at the local bakery, and uh, a crowd gathers around. And the first thing they observe is that, you know, it's too bad that the, the bakery owner has to replace his window. He has to pay to, to get the window fixed. But then they, they realize that this unfortunate act is actually going to stimulate the economy. Bastiat acknowledges that it's true that the glazier's business is sparked, the window glazier's business. Um, and so, um, but, but he says, you're just looking at the obvious. You're looking at the scene part of this. What are the, you know, what are the consequences of this window being broken? He says, you need to look at the unseen implications. And so he's making the point that 
economist and, and we as people should look at, at both just the obvious things and the seen things and the unseen things, the implications of it. So what are the unseen things in this scenario? Well, if the bakery owner was saving his money to buy a new pair of shoes, now he's, he's lost out. He, he has to use that money instead to repair his window. Um, the shoemaker loses out as well. So if you keep score at kind of a rudimentary basic level, the destruction of the window results in the bakery owner losing out. He doesn't get to buy the shoes that he wants. The shoemaker loses out because he doesn't get to make a sale, but the glazier wins, okay? And that's a net negative. If the window had not been broken, then the bakery owner wins. He gets to buy his shoes. The shoemaker wins. He gets to sell shoes. The glazier doesn't get the opportunity, but that's a net positive. Bastiat also wrote a little work called The Candlemaker's Petition. It's a reductio ad absurdum where he, on behalf of the industry um, that provides lighting to people, candlemakers, uh, the people that have street lamps, that sort of thing, they petition the government because of the sun's unfair competitive advantage. And so they say, you know, we need the government to require everybody to board up the windows, put, uh, you know, install curtains because the sun just has too much competitive advantage. And if we do this, we're going to stimulate the economy greatly because we're going to need more tallow to make candles, uh, which means more animals have to be raised in the countryside. We're going to need more oil. More oil seeds are going to have to be grown. And so they make this case that the government should basically ban the sun. Um, and, and remember, Bastiat, because of where he grew up and the business that he was in, was very sensitive to protectionism and tariffs. And so that's why he's making this argument. Someone once described tariffs as one's own government doing to you during peacetime what your enemy wants to do to you during wartime. And Bastiat recognized this, I think, pretty well. He painted the picture of an impassable mountain. And there's a people group on one side and another people group on the other side, but they cannot trade with each other. They can't exchange because of the geography. So finally, somebody gets the bright idea to build a tunnel through the mountains so these people can trade with each other and, and lower the prices on goods. Um, but as soon as they did that, then the governments put tolls up on either side and um, raised the prices right back up. That's what Bastiat calls plunder. Now, I'm going to be quoting from his book titled Economic Harmonies, but I want to note one thing about Bastiat that we should see as very valuable, and that is his devout Christianity. He writes this, quote, In this book, there is a central dominant thought. It provides every page. It gives life. It pervades every page. It gives life and meaning to every line. It is the thought that begins the Christian's creed, I believe in God, end quote. So we're, we're blessed to receive Bastiat's work as a Christian work. Um, it's part of our heritage, and it makes it really uh, fun to read as a Christian. His book on economic harmonies, it, and, and by the way, he really was wanting to create a volume with, with three books in it, and that was a book on economic harmonies, one on social harmonies, and then finally one on the history of plunder. But unfortunately, he passed away before he could complete most of that. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, give you a quote from Economic Harmonies. This is a little bit long. Forgive me for that. Um, but it's going to give you a good taste of, of Bastiat's writing style. And it's uh, probably better than my words anyway. He says, quote, Let us take a man belonging to a modest class in society, 
a village cabinet maker, for example, and let us observe the services he renders to society and receives in return. This man spends his day planing boards, making tables and cabinets. He complains of his status in society, and yet what, in fact, does he receive from this society in exchange for his labor? The disproportion between the two is tremendous. Every day when he gets up, he dresses, and he has not himself made any of the numerous articles he puts on. Now, for all these articles of clothing, simple as they are, to be available to him, an enormous amount of labor, industry, transportation, and ingenious invention has been necessary. Americans have had to produce the cotton, Indians the dye, Frenchmen the wool and the flax, Brazilians the leather, and all these materials have had to be shipped to various cities to be processed, spun, woven, dyed, etc. Next, he breakfasts. For his bread to arrive every morning, farmlands have had to be cleared, fenced in, plowed, fertilized, planted. The crops have had to be protected from theft. A certain degree of law and order has had to reign over a vast multitude of people. Wheat has had to be harvested, ground, needed, and prepared. Iron, steel, wood, stone have had to be converted by industry into tools of production. And he goes on and on, dot, dot, dot. It is impossible not to be struck by this disproportion, truly incommensurable. I make bold to say that in one day he consumes more things than he could produce himself in 10 centuries, end quote. So in this, you can see that Basiat is not just talking about economic harmonies, but he's also talking about social harmonies. And throughout his work, he is staunchly against Rousseau's idea that social constructs are unnatural and oppressive. Basiat shows the incredible blessings that come from man living in society with one another. All of the goods that we have at our disposal, all of the means that we have to accomplish our ends are in many ways the cumulative efforts of those before us, and we are stacking up things for generations to come. So this is being fruitful. This is multiplying. But not all of this is seen in the mundane actions that we take on a day-to-day basis. So like the village cabinet maker that Basiat spoke of, he feels like he isn't doing anything particularly special with his life, but the results of his work will pile up as blessings for those that come after him. You don't necessarily see it when you're planing the wood. You see it when the cabinet is finished, when it's installed in a beautiful house, providing value down the years. He observes this again in opposition to Rousseau. He says, quote, an observation that has always filled me with admiration for the providential plan that rules our destiny. In the state of isolation, our wants exceed our productive capacities. In society, our productive capacities exceed our wants, end quote. Okay, now, Basiat was also a great libertarian. In fact, the work that he's probably most famous for is a, is a little book called The Law. And in it, he provides a, a moral argument for natural rights, the right of life or personhood, the right of liberty, the right of property. And he makes the case that law should only secure one's right to defend those rights. But as for the state, the monopolistic agent that assumes the right to provide this service, he often refers to it as an illusion or a great fiction. He sees the state as an agent of plunder, and I'm disappointed that he never finished that work on the history of plunder. Um, I think it would have been entertaining and informative. But ultimately, Bastiat was laissez-faire. Okay? He believed that men ought to be free to voluntarily trade with others, and that only in such a condition will there be economic harmony. And he's very explicit to attribute that harmony to God and the order that God has baked into the world. On the other hand, Bastiat despises the ways in which governments will take it upon themselves to synthetically, in a sense, non-unnaturally uh, structure society. 
Okay? Politicians can try to control and contradict and bend economic laws that God has placed as foundational, but he says this is futile. He writes, quote, Xerxes, who was so intoxicated with his power as to say to the waves, thus far shall ye come and no farther. The waves, however, did not retreat from Xerxes, but Xerxes from the waves. And if not for this wise but humiliating precaution, he would have been drowned. The social planners, therefore, lack the force to subject humanity to their experiments. Even though they should win over to their cause the Tsar of Russia, the Shah of Persia, and the Khan of the Tartars, and all the rulers who hold absolute power over their subjects, they still would not have sufficient force to abolish the general laws of property and exchange, end quote. So whether it is taxes, tariffs, protectionist policies, or social planning, Bastiat sees all of it as going against the order of God's world. Kings can no more control economic laws and principles or stifle them any more than they can control the waves. And you can look at black markets as an example. The discord brought by politicians to hem free and voluntary markets, again, which he calls plunder, can be solved by looking to a concept inherent in free markets, competition. Bastiat believes that every good or service to be exchanged should be done within a competitive environment. He writes, and again, this is a little lengthy, sorry, but I think it's an interesting argument here. He says, quote, There is no word in all the vocabulary of political economy that has so aroused the angry denunciations of the modern reformers as the word competition, to which, to add to the insult, they unfailingly apply the epithet anarchistic. What does anarchistic competition mean? I do not know. After all, what is competition? Is it something that exists and has a life of its own like cholera? No. Competition is merely the absence of oppression. There is no law that is richer in social harmonies, more beneficial in its general results. No law attests more strikingly to the immeasurable superiority of God's plans over man's feudal contrivances, end quote. I'm not done. I'm going to come back because he's got to finish this argument. But I just want to stop. I want to pause to say, listen to his emphasis on this is God's order at work. There's, there's mechanistic things in God's order that works in our favor. So he says, quote, God has lavished on his creatures the gifts of heat, light, gravitation, air, water, the soil, the marvels of plant life, electricity, and many other blessings too numerous to mention. And even as he has implanted in each man's heart a feeling of self-interest, which, like a magnet, draws all things to it, so has he, God, in the social order provided another mainspring whose function it is to preserve his gifts as they were originally intended to be gratis and common to all. This mainspring is competition. Thus, self-interest is that indomitable individualistic force within us that urges us on to progress and discovery, but at the same time disposes us to monopolize our discoveries. Competition is that no less indomitable humanitarian force that wrests progress as fast as it is made from the hands of the individual and places it at the disposal of all mankind. These two forces work together to create our social harmony, end quote. This is an interesting argument. Basiad is saying that individuality and competition are the two things that together create social harmony. When it comes to state control, the apologists of the state insist that individualism and competition throughout the marketplace are the things that bring anarchy 
and chaos. But Bastiat turns that on their heads and says, no, when you deny men their ability to pursue their interests, to be fruitful and multiply, and when you take away their ability to compete with one another, then you have chaos. You've stunted progress and prosperity. You have chaos. You have discord. So competition is God's way of taking the progress of your self-interest, of you being fruitful, and opens it up to the world to improve upon. Bastiat's goal, again, is to have prosperity spread about. Politicians want to ensure that their work has no competition and that they are prosperous at the expense of others. And I hope that you see in this his balanced and Christian position. He recognizes that sin comes from the heart of man. He's not taking an unrealistic and utopian laissez-faire viewpoint. He recognizes that evil is present in the world. He states, quote, Since the spirit of plunder, like the urge to produce, has its origin in the human heart, the laws of the social world would never be harmonious if in the long run the urge to produce were not destined to overcome the spirit of plunder, end quote. So this is Bastiat, the postmillennialist. This is Bastiat looking at fruitfulness and multiplication and recognizing that God's plan is to restore men to that calling, to, to faithfully obey the creation mandate. On the one hand, he says, yes, there's evil in the world. Men's interests are not always pure, but this does not mean that we can just ignore or throw out the ways in which God has ordered the world. He writes this, quote, evil exists. It is inherent in human frailty. It evidences itself in the moral order as in the physical order, in the mass as in the individual, in the whole as in its parts. Because our eyes may hurt and our sight grow dim, will the physiologist ignore the harmonious mechanism of these wonderful organs? Will he deny the ingenious structure of the human body because that body is subject to pain, illness, and death? In the same manner, because the social order will never bring mankind safely to port in the fantastic dreamland of absolute good, must the economists refuse to recognize the marvelous structure of the social order? End quote. Bastiat worked as a judge. He was a justice of the peace in a town earlier in his career, and he was noted for his common sense and wise judgments. And though not trained in law, he was respected for his decisions. I think it was because of his principled Christian morals, his understanding of, of natural law and his understanding of economic laws that gave him this success. And as you go out being fruitful and multiplying in all of the ways that you may do so, you are required to be a judge. Whatever you're interacting with, whatever you see on the news, whatever issues are coming your way, you need to be a wise judge. When the government says, we need lockdowns to save lives. You should be thinking, okay, what are the seen and the unseen consequences? What are the seen and unseen things at play here? Or if the government says, we're going to just you know, distribute all this grant money and we're going to create lots and lots of jobs. Well, okay, remember the seen and the unseen. Remember the candle maker's petition. Uh, when people are promoting uh, different forms of government or new ideas about how we ought to be governed, think through it. Is this consistent with the order of the world that God made? Is it creating economic harmony, economic or economic discord? This is, biblically speaking, another way in which men are to be kingly. This is a hallmark of biblical kingship, and that is to judge things, to weigh things out. And as we understand the world, as Basiat understood the world, I think we will be better judges, more wise, turning our self-interest in the way that God would have us, and bringing order to the world. Thank you.